0: WPCAN's LGBTQ community radio show, broadcasting at 89.5 FM and streaming at WPKN.org and to the WPCAN Live app. I'm your host, Andrew S. Ross, and with me is our trusty sidekick, program coordinator and co-host, Bonasue Burt. We reach Fairfield, Litchfield, and New Haven counties in Connecticut and Suffolk County in Long Island, worldwide through streaming at WPKN.org. We come to you on the fourth Wednesday of each month from 12 noon to 1 p.m. And we're also available on podcast at wpcan.org and at soundcloud.com. And we're very excited to have the author and activist and um, uh, Lance Ringel, who is the author of Flower of Iowa. And uh, we'll go through the book today and some of the other things he's done. And, uh, Bon, I'll have you introduce uh, Lance.
1: Uh, I want to make sure that all the magic is here. Uh, welcome, Lance. We're glad to have you on the show today. Um, and uh, Lance uh, is also, uh, was in the, um, Fairfield County for a while, uh, working with a Stanford advocate in Greenwich Times. And he not only is a, uh, incredible with his debut book, A Flower, a Flower of Iowa, is a playwright uh, with In Love with the our Arrow Collar Man and uh, the, A Musical Animal Story. He is also at Vassar College and has worked uh, uh, as the Assistant Commissioner for, of Human Rights under the New York Governor Mario Cuomo and at the National Gay Task Force under vet, uh, veteran LGBTQ advocate Virginia Puzo. Welcome, Lance. How are you today?
2: I'm great. How are both of you? And thank you for having me on the show.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, I'm doing well in this lovely rainy day here in Bridgeport. Um, Also in
2: Poughkeepsie, New York.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. A little side note, when I first moved to Connecticut uh, years and years ago uh, from upstate, I was uh, always amazed to hear on the news upstate and Poughkeepsie today. It's just like, you know, all the (laughs) rest of the state was not existent. Right. Um, Now I, I don't. Again, I don't know where to start, but we're going to start. You know, we'll, we'll dive right in with a book. And um, for our listeners, um, Little Intro Flower of Iowa is a story of love between two soldiers during World War One tommy flowers and david pearson who met at a pub in france during a time when the world was in chaos uh with pandemic and war um a pandemic pretty much like we're going through right now um i i love how you you wove their story into the, the that epic backdrop world war one uh and along with many many other characters um it just, the book was just so, I have to say, like I said, I'm a terrible fangirl. Um, how did you come up with the concept for the book?
2: Well, uh, I was back in the early 90s. I'm dating myself here. Uh, <laughs> um, I actually, I had uh, an illness, a uh, hepatitis that, that made me bedridden, and um There was a show that ran when I was 12 years old that CBS did uh, on uh, World War I. Uh, There's a lot of footage. The film footage of World War I, you'd be surprised how much. They re ran it on the local PBS when I was recuperating, and it kind of rekindled an interest in the First World War that I had had uh, from seeing that series when I was 12 years old. And the year after I first saw the series, I read The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, work of history that reads like fiction about the beginning of the First World War. So, unlike most Americans who are into the Second World War or Civil War, um, and I must say, I was never a little boy who played with toy soldiers or anything, but I was fascinated by the First World War. And that the time I was recuperating and watching this was the same time that Bill Clinton was running for president for his first term. And his, his uh, policy uh, towards uh, gay and lesbian at that point, soldiers, um, uh, which eventually, of course, became the notorious don't ask, don't tell policy, was in the air. And it got into my head that I was fascinated by World War One. What would it have been like for two soldiers in the First World War to meet and fall in love? So that was the genesis of it. And that led to four and a half years of research and writing. Um, I had friends who used to say, Oh, you just did this so you could go to Europe uh but that wasn't the reason. Uh and um, and then um, when it first I first completed the manuscript. I don't think uh, anybody was ready for a novel like this set when it was. So I continued working on it uh, for another 17 years. And in 2014, uh, with the centennial starting, uh, Flower of Iowa was released as an e-book. And um, this uh, past spring, as in hardcover and the reception in both cases, has been quite heartening. Above all, because I want people to meet and know these characters, so... I'm all in favor of fan girls and fanboys. boys.
0: <laughs> um,
1: like you said, I just uh, I, before we go too far, and I know this, I, I don't want to jump right to the very end of the book. Yeah,
2: we don't
1: <laughs> in, in the tail end of the book, and I don't want to be We'll, we'll go. We'll let you talk more about the book itself, and a, if I ever, like I said, I stole the show from Andy a long time ago, so I promise I'll let you get a word in, Edgewise. Um, but where you mentioned a. Uh, a bar in Danbury. What bar were you reta- referring to?
2: Uh Triangle.
1: Okay, I that was right.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Unfortunately, uh, the bar is that bar is no longer with us. Uh, right. There's one that uh we used to go to in uh Valhalla. And but uh trivia lounge is still pretty pretty active here in, in Fairfield County. So, um but uh, like you said, it, it, with the the policy of "don't ask, don't tell," and um, the you know the the finally the, you know I, I, a, a way as a genesis to finally have an acceptance uh, with not getting too you know with with the, avoiding the politic at the time. Um, did you find that, uh, as you said, it was released as an e-book in 2014, and an excerpt I was reading of your bios is that you had done this as readings, that you would do excerpt readings, and um, that you sort of also developed this into a play. Um, yeah. How How much... As the book has progressed in time to now it's uh, 2020, do you feel that that the understanding of uh, gay men and women in the military is is more understood and better accepted?
2: Yes, I do. Uh, It's been interesting. I mean, it's interesting because when the e-book first came out, uh, it was easy for us to get... um, in LGBTQ venues, um, but um, still with uh, some resistance um, in terms of trying to get into non-LGBTQ venues. But as the book has been read and people have commented, you know, they they go to um, uh, they've commented on our website, which of course I'm obliged to point out is www.flowerofiowa.com. Um, one of the cool things in a way about having an ebook first is people read it all over the world and i kind of braced myself for uh, people writing back you know, into the to the blog there uh saying oh you know how dare you write something that in, that uh, implies there were anything like gay soldiers in world war 1 that didn't happen instead what happened was i had these military history buffs <laughs> who were who were arguing with about military history so that for instance um Uh, I did a blog post. uh, The book is set in 1918, so that's the last year of the war, but one of the most famous battles in the war is the Battle of the Somme, which happened on July 1st, 1916, and um, the British Army had 60,000 casualties by noon which is still the worst day in the history of the British Army. Um, and somebody actually wrote back to my blog when I, when I on the website when I blogged about it. It was really a British victory. And I'm like, really? Okay, I'm not going to argue with you about this. <laughs> but, uh, but what's interesting is that people took it seriously, um, perhaps because I crossed a very emotional romance with a lot of research so that everything about the war that I write um, is very accurate. Uh, and um people have responded, and a lot of the people who have responded very positively have not been lgbtq uh, oh, that's so that's been great
1: well as, as I said that you you have the supporting characters in the book are also so incredibly well developed that you. i I found myself and I have to say I had read a good part of the book, and then I put it down and as as life goes, in the wee hours this morning, I am like going. Okay, I have got to finish this because I still, you know, I, right to the very end, you have dealt, developed this book in such a way that you have to read every, every page to find out who, um, where everybody is and how it, how it ends and, and the, the involvement of all the characters. And um, I think that's also going to engage engaging a larger, the, the larger audience um because it it reveals the 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 essence of these two young men and their love for one another which i was so touched about with um along with the people that they were with at that moment uh in the time do you feel that in that time that there was more of an acceptance of who they were because of the moment that the, all the characters found themselves in, as compared to any other time if they had just randomly mm-hmm.
2: met. I think uh, I think that what you see in the book is there's this mix of it's forbidden. I mean, people got court-martialed for oh, gosh, you know I'm if they were that. found out. But at the same time, at the front. They had many other things to worry about, um, and so you get uh, a spectrum of reaction. And as you know, since since you've completed the book, there's a there's a, a couple of sergeant, a oh, sergeant, an uh, Australian sergeant who becomes a lieutenant, and an American lieutenant who are kind of uh, dueling father figures for Tommy. Mm-hmm. And they both have different reactions toward the end of the book. When uh, and and they're not necessarily what you'd expect in both cases um so uh it's it's something that was kind of at odds and one for one thing, as I was very, very conscious of as I was writing this they had no, the the main characters would have no sense of of wor- they wouldn't have words for what was happening to them. Um, it's true, of course, there was a whole gay subculture, particularly in England and Germany in the late 19th century, but these are small-town boys from Iowa, with the title character, and Dunster, England, in the case of Davy. Uh, and they haven't, they're not aware of that stuff. Uh, so it's so different from now because they wouldn't have classified themselves as gay or homosexual or whatever. You know, it was just they're having these feelings. And so um, in some ways, in some ways, I believe it was easier for people to, uh, if not accept, at least overlook uh, any discomfort because they weren't categorizing people at that point um, between, say, straight and gay and lesbian. Um, and, And on the other hand, it was unquestionably a court-martial offense, and there's historical records that it happened. So I sort of tried to navigate that with the way I wrote this, um, because at the front, like I said, um, one of the many, many things I read while I was writing it was The Sexual History of the World War by Magnus Hirschfeld, who, of course, is seen by many people as the father of the modern LGBTQ movement. Um, And... He was writing, uh, having done lots of interviews, and most of it, frankly, is about having sexual relations, but he does have a a chapter, uh, in which he talks about uh, a soldier coming off their watch, uh, and saying, when when I'm done with my watch, can we have sexual intercourse? This is a German soldier, one to the other. Um, and of course, probably they didn't use such a a polite word at the time, but anyway, it was kind of matter that this is a way to pass the time, right? Because they're stuck in the trench and etc. And so there was a certain matter of factness that even Hirschfeld found in his interviews that soldiers would have about that. And to an odd extent, this cataclysmic conflict opened things up, and uh, and you do see that, of course, um, in the Second World War. Um, Much more so, because as Helen Burbay wrote in "Coming Out Under Fire," uh, that uh, a lot of both men and women in service came back from the Second World War thinking, "This is who I am," and um, the movement started being born in San Francisco, in particular.
1: Now, how how did you pick Iowa for
2: for Tommy? Well, this is an interesting thing. I um, I I'm from Illinois. I'm from downstate Illinois. And uh when I was trying to think of how to set this up, I knew I wanted it to be an American soldier and a British soldier. Um at least I didn't at least I wouldn't have a language barrier, although as you know from reading the book, there's still a bit of a language barrier between Americans and uh, Brits. But um it sounds easy and when you start to do the research, the only possible um uh battalion and regiment and uh uh, from From the American Army, who got situated next to the British, because mostly we were alongside the French, was the thirty third division, which was the National Guard Division from Illinois, so there you go, my home state that was one of those moments of serendipity when you think okay i 'm meant to write this and so I could have easily put him from Illinois, uh, but I felt like Iowa was somehow more um, emblematic and when i when I came up with his name, um, there was something. Uh, sound wise about flower of Iowa with the W Um, and I thought that that works better. And Iowa is so, uh, um, symbolic, I think, of middle America. And so many as people said, Illinois tends to get mixed in with Chicago. So I went with Iowa. Uh, and then Chuck my husband of uh, forty four years, <laughs> and I were living in Chicago in nineteen ninety three when I first started writing it and we took we actually drove to Iowa and drove around to audition, if you will, small towns for being Tommy's hometown, and we found the one we wanted
1: so um uh, i I'm, I'm Andy has a list of questions, and i'm 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 Ticking them off, so I'm going to let Andy ask a couple questions here. Okay. And before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that this is WPKN's LGBTQ Community Radio Show, and we come from, to you from noon to 1 o'clock on the fourth Wednesday of the month at 95. I always do this wrong 89.5 FM uh, here in beautiful downtown Bridgeport. Andy?
0: Yeah. It, uh... Good to uh, good to hear you, Lance. Uh, when you said about Tommy Flowers and David Pearson, and they met uh, at the yes Minute and like, how did their relationship grow uh, over time? Just a little bit.
2: Well, I think part of what I did, and I've had I've had people say on Goodreads that they're not professional viewers and this, um, their their relationship. They become best buddies first. Um, they they don't immediately even recognize that there might be any sexual attraction. The first thing is that they're best buddies, and as one sees very early in the book, they're living at a time when being physically close between men did not have the same loaded um, aspect that it does now. So soldiers slept together together, um, he just slept together without having sex quite a, quite a bit, and we're very close physical contact. So they become best buddies, and only very slowly over the course of the novel, um, it doesn't take all the way to the end. But only slowly do they realize that there's something more going on.
0: Very good, very good. And then you also mentioned a bit about uh, Jamie Colbeck, the uh, supervising. Mm-hmm. Uh, lieutenant. Uh, uh, lieutenant. He was uh, sergeant and lieutenant. Um, it was more of a, was that more of a father-mentor relationship, or? Well, I, that's that's
2: one of two. The other is Billy Sand, the American yes. lieutenant who shows up later. And um, Jamie, it's it's interesting. I, I don't usually write with timelines, but I wrote this one with a timeline And before I started, because of, after all, I was following real events. Um, but once I've set the timeline, I don't always know what's going to happen. And Jamie is a character who is so colorful and so interesting that um, he he just sort of grew from the time I introduced him, because I always say after about page 50 or 60 of anything I'm writing, the characters start to write it, and I just almost feel like a medium. And, yeah, Tommy is so new and so naive to the battlefield, and David... It being the same age of eighteen, has been there a couple months and has more experience. But I, I felt like Tommy needed, and the reader needed somebody with more experience uh, to be able to sort of work into the plot other things about the war, and that's where Jamie came in. Uh, and Jamie is very brash, uh, which maybe is stereotypically Australian. Uh, and um, Jamie is also in love with Nicole who works at the SMNA, who is in love with Tommy, so there's that complication. Um, and so he's kind of the uh, macho with a heart of gold kind of father figure. And then uh, partway through the book, Billy Sand shows up, and he's a very erudite, well-educated, um, very brainy sort of uh, leader who Tommy also finds himself like totally trusting and admiring. So... I I never intended to create that when I started writing the book, but I think, and and just for reference, um, Jamie is 30 at one point uh, when Nicole's thinking about him. She she says in her mind, he was old, maybe 30. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and Billy's 25, and Tommy and David are 18. But in that situation, being that much older, even though it sounds like ridiculously not so much older, can make you a virtually like another generation, make you a father figure to the people you're leading. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting um, side thing that, that grew up that I thought became very important. Um, does Tommy take his cue from Jamie, who, when they're in a battle, is the one who's just totally cool and says, keep charging ahead, Or does he also take his cue from Billy, who thinks things out? Um, and it became a whole interesting sideline to
0: the book. Exactly, yeah. And you mentioned a little bit about life in the trenches, how it was all close, and I know you did a lot of research. Um, A little bit of, could you describe it, and how they had to deal with it? Yeah, it was
2: uh, it was pretty awful, <laughs> and it's one of the things that really distinguishes World War One. Um, both sides in 1914, when it started, after a few months dug in in trenches, and the Allies were usually on lower ground than uh, the Germans, uh, which meant they were in these glorified ditches that were maybe the height of a man. Uh, maybe slightly more, if they could get it fix that right. Um, and they tended to flood because they're in lower ground. You had rats, everybody had lice uh, from from sleeping there. um and when you went to the trenches, you were usually on a six day rotation, uh, which meant you were kind of on a weird twenty four hour clock because things got more active in the evening and you tried to sleep during the day. Uh, and uh, there was the constant threat, yes, of being shot, although the idea behind trenches is you're protected, although, as Davy memorably says in one scene, you know, I knew a bloke who got his head blown off because he poked his head out of the trench. Um, but the real fear was shells. Uh, this was the first mechanized war, and people were, lo- artillery were lobbing shells at each other. So you could be in a trench and feel safe because you're not being shot at, and suddenly a shell could come whistling over and... Blow everything apart. Uh, so there's the constant fear, there's the constant uh, closeness uh, in the fear, there's the rats in the life, there's uh, nobody takes a bath, which I talk about sometimes in the book. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's uh, almost impossible to conceive now. Or even in World War II, as horrible as that was, the troops actually had kind of more relatively the things to make it easy, uh, life easy at the battlefront than, than in World War I. It's this collision of the 19th and 20th centuries that really made me want to write the book. Um, and it fascinated me about the First World War because they don't, have, they don't have any radio, for instance. So the songs in it are songs they sing themselves while they're marching to the front. Um, we do have a very early kind of USO-type performance in it with a very memorable character who is a very real person. Um, but um, they, it was a very claustrophobic life in the trenches, and the main things were fear and fatigue, uh, and under that, um, under that uh, stress, as we all know, we would now call it PTSD. Uh, people got what they called shell shock, and again, it was called shell shock because that was the, the worst thing you know, they feared. Hopefully that gives you a little sense of it.
0: Yeah and as you just related to that there was a lot of damage injuries and uh, casualties seemed to come from what it, I know you mentioned it friendly fire and was this a yes. sign of the times or the newness of some of the technology of artillery or tanks or uh, you know the, the the term the fog of war
2: came for later but it certainly fit the first world war um there were primitive field telephones but the people giving the orders really didn't know what was going on at the front, so there was this massive confusion. And um, yeah, there, there's a scene where tanks, which were one of the new introductions to the war, um, are involved, and there is some, um, a really tragic friendly fire incident. Uh, and they're dealing with new machinery, their communications is terrible. Um, there's just all of the ingredients for a disaster like that happening, and it did happen. Uh, Often, um, you know, right. and and so you're, you had to worry about something going wrong from your own side as well as always worrying about something coming from the opposing side.
1: Every um, for our listeners, one of the interesting things that Lance did with the book was we have mentioned the character Jamie. Jamie was off from Australia, and Lance used the mechanism of writing the English more phonetically as if as how Jamie would pronounce it Mm -hmm. Uh, so I found that to be incredibly engaging which made me not that I could read it out loud and have a good Australian accent, but I could hear his voice in my head with the Aussie accent, and you just mentioned the wind, m- music of the time, and all I could, could think of is every time I would, you know, be reading about Jamie, as I'd be listening, the song Waltzy and Matilda would be
2: coming Walter to my Matilda, head. Matilda, yes, which he sings to Tommy when they first met. Um, yeah, I, I actually scaled that back on um on my first draft I was being real phonetic and then I realized that made it hard to read. So what I did with not only Jamie but also Davey who is from um Dunster in Somerset, but he says Nimon's from Bristol, so I gave him a Bristol accent. Um is certain words, so you know, drop Davies H's. You you uh, you make it clear from the spelling that it's when Jamie's talking, saying how and now, um, that sort of thing. And I thought two or three of those at the most for each person who has an accent was enough, so that when you have stretches where there's no he said he said, it's pretty clear who's talking. Um, but also you get the flavor of what's going on. And one of the things that the book ended up being about, because it's about a lot of things, is Tommy being in an in an environment where everybody's speaking a little strangely, Uh, whether it's his British best buddy who ends up being more, whether it's his Australian lieutenant, not to mention the French. And I made the choice, and I've only had like one or two readers, actually. I actually had, Nicole talks in French,
1: but I wrote
2: it so that uh, talking around, if you don't know any French, you still get what she's saying.
1: Well, I, I kept saying that I would, I could read it, and I'm sitting there going, "Boy, I, my my high school French is not supporting this." <laughs> but um, no, it, it, it in getting to it, like I said, the the, the love story, and I I, I, I want to talk about the book so much, but I don't want to to, to have any spoilers because sure. I think everybody just needs this is this is. Needs to run out and get this book. And if I noticed, thank I had you. looked at Amazon, and there's only eleven copies left. So everybody, you've got to get the book,
2: especially with Armistice, Armistice Day It's also com- on Noble, uh, okay, in cool. case, yeah, if you want, uh, and as well Amazon. But yeah, um, um,
1: it, but the thing, the thing is, is with Armistice Day coming up, this is a a I this is a must read. To I'm telling my the listeners here that thank you. It it is so and and so i, I connected with it and just so many so many levels and um right down to like i said so many of the little details about how tommy and davy communicated with each other being that they were an american and a brit in
2: mm-hmm.
1: not in the same unit so um how they had used a uh, uh, sister from one of the hospitals as their intermediary with the coded language for their communication. Uh, especially, where did you come up with the concept of the letter that was that he was trying to get open and, and until he could uh, you know...
2: Yes. Um. So, well, first of all, next to Jamie or along with Jamie, it feels like Sister Jean is you know, uh, Sister Jean Andersen is one of the favorite characters in the book for a lot of readers. Um, she's a Canadian nurse uh, in London, and when David gets wounded, uh, she's in the hospital there and and begins to know both of them. Um, and uh, so, one of my challenges in writing the whole thing was: okay, they're in units fighting side by side, but they're not hanging out every day. So I had to. Kind of follow the trench rotation to give opportunities when they would meet, and then when I, when I moved things to England and then uh, it moves from there, I thought, okay, how are they going to communicate with each other later in the book and Sister Jean's as a, as an intermediary made sense to me um, and then, without giving away too much um, there's a very special letter she 's using as an intermediary, and I thought, how could that happen, uh, so I came up with um, the way it happens. That um, it's a letter within a letter, uh, and um, and I also came up with the way that the mystery of how to get to it without ruining it gets solved. And um, yeah, you, you, you work with what you've got, uh, and particularly in terms of what um, what would happen to kind of break the code. Okay, so what's available. And why would Jamie be the one who would know how to do it? Um, so uh, it made sense because, remember, people generally communicated by letter when they were not near each other. So there are a number. there. That's the most amazing letter, I guess, for lack of a better uh, adjective in the book. But, of course, there's a lot of excerpts from letters, particularly with him writing home.
1: Right. Right. Uh, I just, you know, the the fact that he, he she had used the wax and and because it was mm-hmm. the, the the for the listeners and this isn't a spoiler, the communication that Davy and and Tommy were using were they were in uh, the pink of things. I'm not getting that right. right. I don't have the book. Right. Open. I'm
2: in but, the pink and yeah, etc. Right, yes.
1: Yeah. It, 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 so things could get past the censors. This was also vital um, because of the fact that anything that could be construed by a censor would have them both yanked out and court-martialed, as we said, and possibly, right. you know, worse, uh, being that they could construe that these two were committing treason by community. That that was my takeaway, too.
2: Right, yeah. Soldiers weren't supposed to communicate, period. By letter. Exactly. So there's that,
1: yeah. And... um so um I did, but like I said when I came upon the the, the one letter geez, you know just having try you know he at one point he's t- trying tried to take his Bennett to it going I got to get it is um it just it, it, again right to the again the, the right to the end the, I felt the heart of every one of your characters um thank you man. and it it just it, it it like I said it it it's one of these books that I will definitely sit down and reread um because i i i i loved it, 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 i loved the 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 the, the, the i, I want to say you've used the word subtlety, but that's not right either but the the like i said possibly because of the the time and place they all were. Is how much of a family they all became, except for Carson, who is who. Yeah,
2: is... well, uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and By the course, way, did he get shipped home from the hospital, or <laughs> did he get rotated back in? And... Well, uh, see, yeah, that, that's one of the things, and people do ask me about things that happen to some of the other characters that kind of remain unresolved, and I, and I actually, my answer is, I don't know. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I I don't necessarily always have it in my head, and I and that's exactly what happens in war. You're you're working. You're very. You have this almost family relationship with people, and they disappear, like Sanders does earlier in the book, and you just don't know what happened because because those characters wouldn't necessarily ever get to know what happened.
1: To that Especially person. Carson; he's he is that taunting bully
2: from our youth. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he he does. He grows into that. At first, you're not sure that that's him, but it's interesting because Carson has the first word in the book, right. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, um, so that happens. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, because you were talking about your reaction, which is very gratifying, obviously to me as the author. Um, I recently had a, 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 a the, the person who directed uh, our production of *In Love a color man in North Carolina, and he became a friend. And, and he decided to pick up the book, and he was quite quite taken with it too. And he said something to me every time a reader says something, they see things in it that I. Don't necessarily click on until the reader says it. He said there was there's so much joy in the book despite the backdrop. Yes, yes that's and that's exactly it.
0: Um,
2: yeah, um, it's the joy of young love, you know, uh, and um, and I just love the fact that he he notes that because I don't know that I would have pronounced it so until he mentioned it that way.
1: Um. They... And I just wanted to remind her, because we have to get this in because the sure. government likes us to, but this is WPKN's LGBTQ community mm-hmm. radio show, uh, broadcasting to you from 89.5 FM. And I just got a thumbs up for getting it right. Uh, mm-hmm. in, here in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and our guest today is Lance Ringel. Um, now... I, I, we could talk about the book, and I, I definitely want to. But in in your pro, in a, in one of the bios that I I got for you, for you, it talked about um, a, one of your plays, and I you know I was surprised as I read more that you, you are uh, a playwright with three that I can tell under your belt that have been staged. The the the, the a play that developed from the book. Um, in love with the Arrow Collar Man, and uh, one that you did with your your husband, uh, animal uh, animal stories, and yes. that's a musical. Um,
2: that's a musical. I,
1: I, I want to get into the In Love with the Arrow Collar Man uh, in a little bit, but you can. I want you to tell me about, partly how I got into, and then as people know, I, I end up going into Wikipedia and reading a lot of things. I collect New Yorker covers. Oh, okay. And uh so the old advertisements I don't uh, from the old New Yorkers and I'm I'm just all familiar with it. So the um Arrow Collar Man was uh before our fathers were wearing arrow arrow shirts and is back in the time uh when shirts were sold and then you had interchangeable collars and cuffs and yeah. men wore T shirts underneath it. Again, this yes. is right around the same time as the book, uh, Flowers of Iowa. Did you end up getting finding out about um the uh, the illustrator uh because of your research for the book or how did you how did you get into cuz again, like I said it's all a relatively the same era. going into sure. like a Great Gatsby type of thing?
2: Yeah. So, um most people probably listening would not recognize the name J.C. Liondecker the way they would say Norman Rockwell, but they would probably instantly recognize his art if they saw it. Um, Decker was the illustrator before Rockwell, and Rockwell is a character in the play. Um, and I read. Probably in the late 90s, so it was right after I'd finished Flower Vibes First Draft, I read somewhere on the then new internet, I guess, um, about how the Arrow Collar Man, who I was aware of that image, uh, like you say, if you go, if you see vintage advertisements. that the model that Lion Decker used uh for the ads, Charles Beach, that they ended up together for fifty years. Uh and I thought, wow, there's a story. And it turned out there was one book that was out at the time that was written in the seventies by a gentleman named Michael Shaw about uh, in a coffee table book about Lion Decker, in which he very delicately worked around that um, relationship. And then in 2008, um a couple called the Cutler's Came out with the second, and to date, I think still only other coffee table book uh, about Lion Decker, which totally addressed head on the fact that they were together as a couple for 50 years. And I thought, I was already thinking, somebody needs to write this. And as you as you know, I'd been writing novels, right? And I thought, something about this feels like a play. And I was never sure I could really do play at that point, although I had done Animal Story much earlier. That's another story. And, um, so I, I sat down, and then nobody else was doing it, so I sat down to write it. And the material was, again, so rich. In this case, we had real people uh, with, um, you knew a, a lot about them, but then you have to use your imagination for, obviously, personal scenes and stuff. And um, I finished it in the early teens and then got involved um, in. Um, something I wrote for Vassar College where I worked which was called Vassar Voices about 150 years because we were celebrating our sesquicentennial and ended up being done uh, premiere at Jazz and Lincoln Center with Meryl Streep and Lisa Kudrow and uh, Francis Sturney. Uh so I got more used to working around theater and went back to it and, and worked on it a little more and we entered it in the New York New Works Theater Festival where it became a semi-finalist uh, and really uh, that was an excerpt of it, and we just decided... Let, we did the full-length play in... Um, uh in New York's East Village at Theater V St. Marks in late 17. And then last year, the um, Rinalda Museum of American Art in uh, North Carolina was going to have a line decker exhibit, and they called up and said, can we do your play in relationship with the exhibit? And I said, sure, let's talk. So they ended up doing a production down there, and it was really fascinating to see because Chuck directed, my husband directed the New York productions, and it was interesting to see what our friend Mark did, how much it was the same, and how much was different, that's part of the fun of a play. I feel like when novels are done, they're done. When plays are are done, they're never done, because the next production is going to be different. Um, So I've really gotten into it, and without giving away too much, I'm currently writing another play, also based on a, a specific historical incident, historical characters, that happened in my lifetime. And it's amazing the extra level of responsibility you feel when... There are people alive who knew and loved the people you're writing about, Mm. Uh, and I've been fortunate in uh, being able to interview people close to both of the main characters, but wow, do I feel the weight of that. Um, When I wrote In Love with the Arrow Collar Man, I assumed that neither J.C. Leyendecker nor his brother and sister, who are major characters in the play, nor Charles Beach, had any descendants. Uh, When we did the play in New York, it turned out the grandnephews and grandnieces from the brother who stayed in the Midwest came to the play. They loved it, thank heaven!
1: Oh, wow. How cool <laughs> is that? Yeah. Wow. Um, again, getting into a little side note, as far as other illustrators go from the era, was I, I as I said, the New Yorker cover, I also ca- uh, collect sick. uh Covers and and advertising. Uh, who he was a, a Jewish uh, illustrator around that same time? Mm, okay. So, um, wow, about the, the the family being there. That I did. I, did you know beforehand or after the fact?
2: Uh, we knew like uh, a couple days before uh, that they were coming. Um, no pressure. We had a bunch of people coming from. Uh, pvh which used to be Van fannyism which bought arrow so the whole group came from that and we also went to the house in new rochelle new york where a lot of the stuff takes place in the play and it's now a school and uh we kind of were intruding there on a saturday and the gentleman came out and he heard about the play he not only let us come in and see the house as it is now but he brought a whole group from the school to see it too so things like this happen and and uh I mentioned earlier serendipity. When I was writing Flower of Iowa, uh, I was flying back via Iceland from Luxembourg back in the '90s, and a woman was sitting next to me on the plane and asked me, you know, what I was writing, uh, doing, and I told her what I was doing, and she said, "You know, my aunt was one of the few American women who went over to France during World War One as a nurse, and I've still got copies of her letters. But you liked them." Oh,
1: wow! Oh, that's how and cool! And Sister
2: Jean kind of spun out of those.
1: Oh wow! Oh so wow! You you start I, I, you to know think that. you're meant
2: to do it, you
1: know? <laughs> yeah. I, well, again, yes. They're they're the let the finger the the things that fall into place. The things that yes. definitely, if you if you don't write it, karma is still going to find you, and you will write this.
0: <laughs> right. Um, Correct.
1: I, I guess the thing is, I keep saying, you know, Armistice Day is is coming up in a week and a half, and uh, the eleventh uh, day, uh, the eleventh hour of the eleventh day, um, of the eleventh month, and I got that wrong. But we need to remember all of those who have fought and and fallen for this country, especially those who had to remain uh, closeted and 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 were not accepted, or if. You know, not that acceptance is is really 100% yet, but there is an understanding, um, which brings me to how did you feel when he, we all found out that what's his puss, decided not to go to the cemetery because it was a rainy day and it could mess his hair up?
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Given that person's personality, it didn't surprise me, but calling World War I soldiers who fought and died for this country, suckers and losers, is just unforgivable. I mean, he's done a lot of unforgivable things, but that's way up there. Um, and I when I was writing this in the 90s, I'm a real baby boomer, and so baby boomers living through the Vietnam War tended to be kind of anti-military, and I have to say I didn't have – I wasn't – Severely that, but I think writing this obviously gave me a lot more appreciation for the military and what they go through. Um, and it, it's not, it's still not kind of fashionable in lefty, left wing circles to say. Uh, but it's like, wow, what, what the average person, I'm talking about the generals or the people making the policy, what the average man or woman a uh, person who's who's in uniform, person in uniform, I mentioned specifically because obviously trans soldiers are totally under attack now, no. wrongly, for their rights to serve. Um, y- you have to appreciate it. Uh, if you really study it uh, very deeply, you have to appreciate it. You do have to appreciate the sacrifices. And I, I did have people who reacted when they read the first uh, script, uh, draft of it, that, you know, well, wow, you're, you're basically saying what you just said, you know, we need to appreciate the sacrifice of these people. I was like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting, um, because unfortunately, I think the right wing has co-opted a lot of that, but these these soldiers didn't have that politics. They were just fighting for something they believed in, which was, you know, as you, as you see in the uh, in the book... Ultimately, as Davy puts it from the English side, I don't fight for king or country, I
0: just fight for you.
1: Right, right. Um, And Andy, I've got one last question, but Andy, do you have anything left?
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up Sister Jean there because that was a good inspiration right there and that you had actually met the woman on the plane, correct?
2: Well, I met a woman on the plane um, just by accident who said, "My aunt." I was already thinking, "Okay, I want I want some character like this." But when she offered her aunt's letters from France back to the United States that she when she was a nurse in nineteen eighteen, I thought, "Yeah, I want to see those." And and it's not that you it's not that you take specific things out of reading such letters. It's just that I sort of got the whole ambiance, and then I. I made Sister Jean Canadian because this was such an all-encompassing war, and I, the the section where I introduce her, I feel like it's some of the best prose I put in the book. Um, so, yeah, um, that, that, in, that informed me for a character I already had in mind in a very big way, uh, and that was a blessing. That was serendipity.
0: Yeah, it was a very inspiring part of the book to read, and also I think part of the book when you read the... Uh, Hardness of the trenches and the hardness of the life that they had. You, you're, as a reader, you're kind of inspired by Tommy and David. You know they're going to get together, but you're not sure when. And so mm-hmm. you kind of read yeah. through the hard parts, and then you say, "Okay, they get together." So you're happy for them, but you're happy as a reader because it—it's like, "Wow, here's something to look forward to." So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a very right. inspiring course, part as well. There, Go ahead. Back to you, Bonner.
1: no my brain, my brain just. Just went with the. All
2: right, well, let let me mention in the meantime from Andy's question. um, Yeah, besides the difficulty in the trenches, of course, it shows when it shows Sister Jean dealing with the severely wounded in the hospital, that gives you another sense that it wasn't limited to the trenches, that she has to deal with these men, some of whom are terribly disfigured or terribly uh, mentally. Uh, compromised by what they've experienced, so that was another aspect I wanted to have in there.
0: That's very good. It makes it a much uh, more humanistic side to the to the war. The, the the real people that were really taking care of them were the nurses and the people uh, on the front lines and the hospitals and things like that.
1: Exactly. Now, are you going to have any staged readings of the the play from this, or uh, any the st- another staging of the Arrow uh, in Love with the Arrow Collar Man?
2: Well, uh, mm-hmm. we're obviously in a really interesting time. <laughs> um, but actually, what happened was in eighteen we did a a play version, again, in the same festival that Errol Collarman had made the semifinals, has actually made the finals um, of Florida. We found two incredible actors uh, to play, Tommy and Davey, and it was just a, you know, a small excerpt, basically, at the beginning of the book, but it was extremely well-received, um, and we are actually on Zoom with them tonight, uh, with Chuck, you know, who's been the director for all this, and another friend has got some Zoom expertise, because uh, we've had a couple inquiries about doing a Zoom presentation of that short play version and/or a reading. So, and Chuck and I have mostly traveled doing the reading, as as you probably read, we 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 did it at the Gay Games in Paris as part of the cultural stuff. We did it to open the uh, Dublin International Gay Theater Festival, uh, and we have also done it in England. plus San Francisco and all around the country. Um, and it's odd when Chuck and I do it, of course, we're both the ages we are and we're nowhere near 18, but people are listening carefully and are reading to the words, I think, and it somehow it works. But uh, it was a revelation for us to see age-appropriate actors doing it on stage and, and a, whole, a whole different layer of poignancy. Uh, and um, so what we're trying to do is get together a Zoom thing um, right now that involves the actors from that production. And um, Errol Collarman has got a cast of um, about 11. We have people double up on parts. And so more challenging to do on uh, Zoom. But I, we had no idea at the beginning of 2019 there'd be another production, and boom, they called from North Carolina and wanted it. So there's a you-never-know factor about that stuff.
1: Um wow. Uh it just I can't believe that the hour has gone by this quickly. Uh I want to uh thank you for having come on the show and thank you. Uh definitely as I said be, with the times that we are going through and what the community is going to be facing with the way politics are, even if everybody needs to get out and vote. Everybody who listens yeah. to the show knows, <laughs> knows what I feel. And um, it's not kindly to the, the gentleman who, as you just mentioned, and this is what I was going to say a little bit earlier, was the fact that you, you, as a baby boomer myself, and I am just a little younger than you, and the, the draft ended with me for Vietnam, ended okay. my year. Mm-hmm. Um, we were the first of the baby boomers that were not drafted. Uh, the, the men in in my uh, from 1955, and um, what amazes me is is when you, you look at the politics of of the draft from for Vietnam, is the fact that whether you you agree with how they did it, both Bush and uh, Clinton. Did the alternative? If you had a if you had a low number, you you, you got into the reserve. Mm-hmm. You, you, mm-hmm. you volunteered right away. Um, his 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 orangeness, you know, flouted everything. And uh, again, the disdain that he has for this country. So I want everybody to get out and vote, and I want everybody to get out and buy the book.
2: Um, and I would be remiss if I don't, because my publicist would really give me a. Um, but if I didn't say it's Flower of Iowa it's Flower of dot com yeah. or you can find it on Amazon um, Barnes and Noble or if you want the ebook and you've got a Kindle go to smashwords.com
1: yes and i would hear it from jay also jay and just so you know jay and i went to syracuse together
2: oh you did that's great, that's great.
1: so that's how that's how so, you and i got connected because he had sent out the, <laughs> the press release again but again lance thank you so much for being a guest today and thank you so much for such thank an you
2: incredible both. book yeah thank you both i uh, really appreciate it um like I said, uh, the most important thing about this book for me, having written it, is for people to meet them and get to know the characters.
1: You've you got that. That's it's exactly right. it. I feel like the, I, it's, I feel like I came from Tommy's Tommy town, or you know, Tommy's town.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye
1: now. Thank you. Appreciate
0: it. Thank you, Bonnie.